Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Pastor's Bible Study. We continue to go through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse. If this is your first episode, that's great. You can go ahead and start right here. But if you would like, you can go all the way back to the beginning and pick up from the start of Mark's Gospel in chapter 1, verse 1. So, picking up our story today, we're in Mark's Gospel, chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 21 through 43. Let's start by reading 21 through 24. Here are these words. Jesus crossed the lake again. And on the other side, a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Jairus, one of the synagogue leaders, came forward. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded with him, My daughter is about to die. Please come and place your hands on her so that she can be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Okay, it's important to understand there at the very beginning of those verses, it says Jesus came back to the other side of the lake. He crossed the lake again. If you watched our last couple of episodes, the lake that they're crossing is the Sea of Galilee, and the Sea of Galilee has different community groups on different sides of it. When they go to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, living there are Greek-speaking people. They're people from the Decapolis. They're non-Jewish people. When Jesus comes back on the other side of the lake, he's coming back to the side of the lake that is filled with Jewish people. It's where the Jewish community lives. And this is important for a couple of reasons. One, as we talked about in a previous episode, one of the articles of really strong, faithful living with the Jewish identity is to spend as little time as possible with people who are outsiders. But Jesus behaves in another way, communicating a lot about who he is and who he's here for. Now, when Jesus has come back to Jewish people, and remember, he's a Jewish man, he's coming back to his community, and he's coming back to a community that is led by Jewish conventions and standards. That's going to be really important in the next few verses. So, a man appears. In the midst of this crowd, a man comes forward, and his name is Jairus. And it's really interesting that his name is actually given. So often, when Jesus encounters people, In the gospel, there is not a given name made to them. They're kind of just a man or a woman comes forward. The fact that this man's name is given in Mark's gospel indicates it might be known by some of the original audience or it might have an additional level of meaning. Either way, we know that he has a specific position. He's a synagogue leader. And I want to talk about the things that we come to know about Jairus just here in these few short verses. One, we know that he has a position in the Jewish community of respect and esteem and leadership. He's a synagogue leader. It doesn't necessarily mean that he's a rabbi. It probably means he's more like a worship leader, but he's part of the community. He's part of what it is to be a part of faithful Jewish practice. And remember, those people who are part of the established leadership are typically some of the people who are the most resistant to Jesus. Remember, he's turning a lot of things on their ear. He's saying a lot of things that people don't expect to hear. And he's behaving in a lot of ways that aren't consistent with people's expectations for a righteous Jewish spiritual leader. So Jesus is receiving a lot of pushback and resistance, typically from men just like Jairus. But Jairus isn't like that. Some of the things that we find out pretty quickly too, and later on we're going to find out that Jairus is wealthy. That's going to be something we can infer a little bit later on based on the size of his house, honestly. So Jairus has this position of leadership in the Jewish community. He has the prestige and the esteem that comes from being a person of means, but we also find out that he is desperate. He comes to Jesus and he doesn't just come in a calm or dispassionate way, but he comes and he falls at Jesus' feet and pleads with him. Please come and help me. 
Well, of course, the reason he's so desperate is because someone he loves so dearly, his daughter, is about to die. And remember, Jairus doesn't know Jesus personally in this context. This may be the first time he's ever met him, but he's desperate. And that's where I want to pause for our first question. Whether you're watching this live right now with a group of people or whether you're digesting this later on, either watching it on YouTube or maybe you're listening to it as a podcast, I want you to pause and to think, what are some of the key situations and tensions that occur in people's lives that lead them to put aside their skepticism and to reach out to Jesus? Because that is not something that just happened 2,000 years ago. It's something that happens over and over and over again today. People find themselves in situations where, despite the fact that they may be skeptical or they may have reservations, ultimately they come to Jesus because they so desperately need something. So I want to reflect on that in your own life or in the lives of the people that you've met or you've known. What are some of the key situations or the tensions that lead people to put their skepticism aside and run to Jesus? Okay, we're going to pick up our scripture reading there. We're going to read verses 5, 24 through 34. A swarm of people were following Jesus, crowding in on him. A woman was there who had been bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a lot under the care of many doctors and had spent everything she had without getting any better. In fact, she had gotten worse. Because she had heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothes. She was thinking, if I can just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Her bleeding stopped immediately, and she sensed in her body that her illness had been healed. At that very moment, Jesus recognized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, don't you see the crowd pressing against you? Yet you ask, who touched me? But Jesus looked around carefully to see who had done it. The woman full of fear and trembling, came forward. Knowing what had happened to her, she fell down in front of Jesus and told him the whole truth. He responded, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace, healed from your disease. Okay, so I just want to point out that Jesus has not forgotten Jairus or his daughter. In fact, he's on the way to do something about it, but he's being surrounded by people. There's a crowd that's very thick, and he's trying to make his way through it. Meanwhile, we're introduced to a new character, a woman who's been suffering for a condition for 12 years. She's bleeding, and the authors of the scripture are most likely speaking euphemistically. The type of bleeding that she has, we're led to infer, is probably related to or something like menstruation. So she has a condition that's resulted in 12 years from her suffering in this way, not only physically, but even more importantly, spiritually and socially. Remember how I mentioned earlier that we've come back into the Jewish community? We've come back on the Jewish side of the lake for this portion of the story. That means that this community is going to be led and run by Jewish conventions. And one of their conventions, again, is the concept of ritual purity or impurity. Ritual cleanliness or uncleanliness. Remember, we talked about that in a previous episode. Now, per their understanding of the world and what it is to live in covenant community, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, have concepts of ritual cleanliness and uncleanliness that do include things like bleedings or discharges or conditions, etc. And if a person is considered to be ritually unclean, one of the things that can result in is their removal from the community. 
and their prohibition from participating in temple worship. This woman's been suffering for 12 years. And not only is she suffering physically, she's unwell, but she's suffering socially. She's not able to participate in the fullness of life in the way that she desires. She's suffering suffering financially because she's given everything that she has to try to find a cure. Remember, medical science is not very advanced 2,000 years ago. In fact, not only is she impoverished, but those treatments have not only been ineffective, they've made her worse. And finally, she's suffering spiritually. She's not able to connect to synagogue and to temple and to all of these practices that enrich and fulfill her spiritually because of this community understanding of cleanliness versus uncleanliness. And so she's desperate. And she's only heard about Jesus. She hasn't met him yet. She's just heard about him. But she comes to believe, she comes to have faith that if I can just get touch, close enough to him to touch his clothes, I might be healed. Part of their concept and worldview of a holy person would be that their their power and glory would be so significant and radiate so completely from them that the very articles of clothing that they wore would be imbued with some of that power. So that's the environment that leads her to go so close up to Jesus that she's able to touch him without anyone knowing or him even clearly seeing who it is. And it's important to see that she is healed and that Jesus has a sense of power going out from him. And I want to point out that it's interesting because she's not the only person who touches Jesus in that situation, right? I mean, the crowd is so thick that he can't even see everywhere around him. People are crowding up to him. There's no way he's the only person uh, that, or she's the only person that touches him. And yet this is the only time that happens. So Jesus looks around and asks who it is and And she presents herself, and she does so in fear and trembling. And remember that fear and trembling over and over and over again is a response to a theophany. That means a revelation of God's power. Basically, when people see Jesus doing what he can do over and over again, their reaction is fear and awe and feeling overwhelmed because that's what it's like to actually see Jesus. And she has this feeling. And one of the things that I think is worth pointing out is that their concept of ritual cleanliness and uncleanliness was transferable. Meaning, in their worldview and understanding, if an unclean person, like the woman suffering from her condition, were to touch someone else, it would make them unclean. Does that make sense? That would be particularly true for people who were holy people or for leaders. One of their key understandings of themselves would be to not touch anything or come into contact with anything that would make them unclean or impure. And all the people around them would live in fear of doing something to that holy person that would make them unclean or impure. So this woman has crossed a major line. And it would be well within the expectations of all the people who are witnessing this to expect a holy person like Jesus who has been touched without his consent by someone who was considered to be ritually unclean or impure to be a source of incredible anger or even defilement for him. It would be fair for the people who are sitting around and seeing what's about to trans, uh, take place to imagine that he is going to be furious with her. And how does he respond? Well, first, he in no way chastises her. He in no way suggests that she's imbued anything negative to him. 
he in no way suggests that he is subject to being made unclean or impure or separated from God by any of these practices in any way. He's not mad at all. And in fact, he says, daughter, it's your faith that has healed you. Go in peace, healed from your disease. I think it's worth pointing out that a lot of people have touched Jesus in the middle of that crowd. And she's the one who's received transforming healing. She's the one who's had her life completely changed just by brushing up against the hem of his garments. And he points out, I have the power, but it's your faith that put it into action. That says a lot. That teaches a lot. That reveals a lot. I have the power and your faith has put it into action in your life. So what's the lesson in this story for you today? I want to leave this question a little bit more open-ended in this portion, in this story. What's the lesson for you today? What resonates with you? What sticks out to you? What sounds like good news to you? If you're watching this with a group, let's pause it and discuss. If you're listening by yourself, take a moment and reflect. What resonates with you about that story? What sticks out? What makes it sound like good news? Okay, we're going to continue on. We're going to jump back into the narrative of Jairus' daughter and her need for healing. In verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking with her, messengers came from the synagogue leader's house saying to Jairus, Your daughter has died. Why bother the teacher any longer? But Jesus overheard their report and said to the synagogue leader, Don't be afraid, just keep trusting. He didn't allow anyone to follow him except Peter, James, and John, James's brother. They came to the synagogue leader's house, and he saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, What's all this commotion and crying about? The child isn't dead, she's only sleeping. They laughed at him, but he threw them all out. Then, taking the child's parents and his disciples with him, he went to the room where the child was. Taking her hand, he said to her, Talitha Kolum, which means, young woman, get up. Suddenly, the young woman got up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. They were shocked. He gave them strict orders that no one should know what had happened. Then he told them to give her something to eat. So, we return back to that story. This portion of Mark's gospel has the beginning of the story and then this interstitial story, and now we've come to its conclusion. It's important to point out that Jesus gets word that this girl has gone from sick to dead while we're still in the middle of the crowd, while we're still far away. And it's important that Jesus communicates that death is not an obstacle to what he is to do. In fact, it's a necessary condition for what he is to make possible. Right? Death is not an obstacle. In fact, it's a necessary condition for what he is to do. Think about how this ties into the crucifixion later on. Death is not an obstacle. In fact, it's a necessary condition. And then he says something important to Jairus. The number one commandment in all of Scripture, by virtue of repetition, meaning the commandment that's said most over and over and over again throughout Scripture, is do not fear. Do not fear. And so Jesus turns to Jairus in this moment and says, Do not fear. Instead, keep on trusting. I think it's worth pointing out that the opposite of fear is not courage. The opposite of fear is faith. Don't fear in this moment, Jesus says. Keep on trusting. Keep having faith. It's actually the same word 
in Greek, faith and trust are the exact same word. Keep on trusting. And then he goes on with a small group only, just a few of his disciples, meaning that what is going to take place is important that there are witnesses. It's important that there are people that see what's possible, but not too many, not too big of a crowd. We're going to talk about that at the end of today's reading. So he goes forward with the small group. He goes into the house that's full of all of these people making a commotion. This is a hard thing for us to understand in the year 2022, but there was actually something called professional mourners, people that would come in and help a family express its grief by grieving loudly along with them. That's hard to understand. That's really foreign from how we do things, but that's an environment of the culture. And, and these are the people that Jesus sends away. He keeps the family with him. When he says she's not dead, she's only sleeping, he's actually speaking metaphorically. Her physical body has died. But he's revealing something much more about the actual condition that she's in. It's death, yes, but it's more like sleeping. When Jesus heals her, the authors make a really interesting choice, and that is they continue to keep his original words in place. Now remember, the New Testament writings come to us in Greek. They're written in Greek because that was the language of the educated world at the time. Meaning, if you wrote in Greek, that was the language that would most easily uh, transmit and transfer across the world. Greek was the most commonly used language, and so that's why the Gospels come to us in Greek. But that's not the language that Jesus spoke. He would have spoke a combination of Hebrew and Aramaic, which is a regional language that's very similar to Hebrew. And he speaks in Aramaic here. And the authors give us his words in Aramaic because they want us to understand, just like they wanted the original readers to understand when they were reading in Greek, what Jesus actually says and what it sounds like to hear him do this work. And he says, Talitha koum, meaning young woman, get up. And she did we find out that she's 12 years old, meaning that she and this woman who's been suffering from bleeding have had their lives intertwined in an unknown way. The beginning of this girl's life 12 years ago was the beginning of that woman's suffering 12 years ago. And just like this day was the end of that woman's suffering, it's a new resurrection opportunity for this girl. There, this new world has been made possible for her. And she's not just healed, she's restored to life. Right? That's why she's eating. That's why she's going on. It's not just the healing of a condition. She's been restored to a full, complete, and healthy life. And then one of the things that's really hard for us to understand when we're first reading the scripture is that Jesus then turns to people and says, don't tell anyone about this. It's hard for Christians 2,000 years later to understand. But remember, when Jesus is doing this, what he's communicating is it's important that this happened. And it's important that there were witnesses. However not yet ready for the fullness of who I am to be revealed to the entire world. Because when that happens, that starts the clock, ultimately leading towards the crucifixion. So don't tell everyone just yet. But it's important that you saw who I am and what I'm capable of doing. Remember over and over again how I say whenever there's a miracle, there are always two elements to it. There's always the element of what physically happens for that person who experienced Jesus's miraculous work, but there's also a lesson for what Jesus does for all of us. So that's what I wanna ask you today. What does Jesus restore to fullness of life today? What things seem to be dead, but are really only sleeping that Jesus restores to fullness of life today? And finally, how does Jesus ultimately show that death is not an obstacle for him. In fact, it's a necessary condition for what he is to do. 
How does Jesus ultimately conquer death for all of us? And most importantly, how does that influence how we actually live our life? How do you think the disciples felt when they realized what Jesus' power over death meant for them? How do you feel when you realize that Jesus' power over death means something for you? And how does that impact your life? Friends, I'm thankful that you joined me for another session of Pastor's Bible Study. I can't wait to keep going through the Gospel of Mark with you. I'll see you in the next episode. Bye-bye.